You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. doing well how about yourself mr dad i'm a dad yeah that's a thing take Um, take some takes that does it ever feel like oh i'm actually responsible for another human being or do you uh, just feel like i'm a father now oh yeah that was the first thing i thought um was like when people say that the the mac truck of love just like hits you as soon as you have a kid and i'm like yeah, no, the only thing that hit me then was, oh my God, I'm now responsible for another human being. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, it's been it's been really great. Uh particularly once he got around to acknowledging my existence, um, I think it's particularly hard for dads at first because your kids like uh you don't have boobs. Or if you do, they don't work. And therefore... Can we just start the show here? I think that's the perfect cold opening. <laughs> Why not? Whatever. Why not? So, so after, after, after he got fed, after he feeds, it always sounds like we're talking about aliens when I'm like, that. after the feeding. Like, Herner Warzog <laughs> is like, after the feeding. It's like, does he acknowledge you? Like, does he... Uh, is, is he still is he still too young to talk? Has he started talking? Uh, that's a lot of questions at once. Um, I am a parent now. Slow down. But <laughs> um, no. So at first he didn't, and uh, that was frustrating. Um, but uh, shortly he acknowledged me only when I was feeding him, and it took about three months or so after that before he started like acknowledging my presence. Um, at first it feels kind of coercive because you're like, "Hey," and he's like. Uh, and he doesn't respond otherwise. Um, but he's about seven months old now and he started to get into the dad's actually like a cool person. So he now smiles when I come in the room and this human provides me sustenance and entertainment. Basically. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is very much a transactional relationship right now. (laughs) How much, how much of just your, your outlook on life has changed now knowing that you have brought life into the world. I don't know how much uh, specifically has changed. Um, I mean, I always intended on having kids. So there was always that preparation uh, in my head of, of what it would be like, which of course is nothing what it was like. So there's that. Um, But uh, I would say that two big things have changed. One, is uh, now I'm responsible. So now everything has to be taken with a grain of caution uh, because uh, I have to have a well-providing, full-paying job to put a roof over their head. And like the first time your child's hungry and you do not have something to give them is you will know. And you won't just like know, you will feel it in your soul that you have let your child down Uh, or like we had COVID and whatever other respiratory illness uh, as a family, all the vets, all the virus, the kangaroo virus, the monkey pox, the the plague basically invaded the household. And uh, um, when you're, when you have a kid, everybody gets it. It doesn't matter uh, who started it. And so hearing him hold his, tiny little ears and mule essentially because of how bad he was feeling. Yeah. There's not, you don't feel much lower as a parent. It's pretty, it's pretty down here. Um, 
So there's, there's definitely uh, that element of it where, Hey, I'm responsible. I have to take care of him. But the second thing as well is like, now what I'm doing has to matter. Before professionally, personally, exactly. Exactly. Like before you could try something, do this, whatever, you know, have fun, hang around. And not to say you don't have fun with a kid because kids are a ton of fun and not to say I don't have fun outside of the kid, but to, you have to be very intentional about where you're spending your time now, because now everywhere I'm spending my time is taking time away from time I could be spending with him. So I'd say those are probably the two biggest things that, that shifted a little bit as, as I became a dad. It's um, I, I, I'm not a father, so I don't want to compare it, but like being, being married for over a month now um, I I've been with my wife. We, we were together for seven years before we got married. I start, we started okay. going out when I was uh, just barely Eight. a junior. Yeah. Like oh. just barely. Well, I mean, she's a cougar, but like, no, there's not that much. We're not dealing with Stifler's mom here, but like, you know, w- there was, there, there was a moment after we got married where after, you know, going to the courthouse and getting all the legal stuff, do, getting together, like setting up a joint bank account. Like once it was like, we're really married, that's when like something kind of shifted in me and a lot less of my own ambitions and priorities were a lot less of them were as self-focused as they were. And now it's like, oh, there's the financial side, which is now I have to budget for two for two people worth of groceries and stuff like that. But then it came to other things like or or, or with inflation, it's three people worth of groceries. With three people, yeah, at least three and a half. The imaginary money man that's just eating all my shit. But you know, it it, it got it got to the point where it's like, you know, what if I die? Like, what what's she gonna do? Like, do I have things set up? Like, you know, what if something happens and I lose my job right now? Like things that. I, I was already starting to think of now it's now it's become real. And I mean, she's a, she's a functioning adult who could live without me as she had, but I can only imagine how amplified that is when you bring a, when you bring a child into the world. And that's the one thing that I hear from all my friends who are parents. It means something different now, since now people in our age group, I don't know how it is with you and your like friend group and stuff like they're having kids and it's weird because you know these people and you're like, you should not be responsible for a child, but something changes in them. And yeah. somehow while they might stress and they might be, you know, worried and challenged with parenthood, somehow something activates in them and they at least pull off looking like they know how to raise a child, even if the bar is low. Well, and, and if you've gotten any of that from me, then that is basically 100% my partner. Uh, <laughs> He's the one who's like, I know what I'm doing. And everyone looks at you like, how is he involved in this? Right. And I'm like, I do what she tells me to do. We know he helped make well. the child, but does he keep the child alive? Most, yes. Yes, so far. Like my record is 100% on that right now. It only um, goes from a hundred to zero. Really fast. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's like the worst game of risk ever. It's just like you roll the die and the child dies. Every day is it. a game of Sims. <laughs> Except the punishment for failure is prison. <laughs> Basically. Basically. <laughs> but, um, but no, she was a nanny for 10 years. So uh, she has raised 10 kids before. Oh, wow. And probably even cooler than that, she's she was the former political director for North Carolina Libertarian Party. So she's also a libertarian. And she's combined these That's why you two. immediately got her pregnant. <laughs> you, can, you can't miss out. Like, you can't let that go. Um, I mean, it makes sense. <laughs> she can cook, too. So, like, you add all that together. Um, it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but... Being a libertarian, being a libertarian parent is hard, particularly because you start out as an authoritarian. Like you literally brought a child into the world without their consent. So from the very get-go, you violated the nap because the child did not have any say in in this. That's why they refused to nap onward. It, absolutely. It's like you don't care about it. Why should I? Um, so you violated the nap and you brought them into the world and now they're here and they're angry about it. Cause you know, you 
according to them, you just ruined their life, especially since you brought them out of the womb into the world, which was safe and warm and comfortable and cozy into this cold, cruel world. Like our son, when he was born, um, he had swallowed a little bit of his own poop already. So stop. how does that work? So, so basically it's called meconium. So they get to the point where they've eaten enough in the womb that they release it. And, uh, that's a thing. It is. That is horrifying. It is. It can also kill them. Um, that's extra horrifying. (laughs) So we went through 36 hours of labor to get him out of her because that happened and it caused his heartbeat to go a little erratic. Um, so yeah, that can happen. Among other things, um, women dying in childbirth is actually one of the uh, more common forms of death for women than that, that still else. happens in the United States, which is wild yeah. when you think about it. It is. Well, we just started thinking of women as people not that long ago, so like we're working our way toward actually. We can't, we can't let them. We can't let them just go from crawl to run. They have to walk first. People first, then adequate medical care, and then maybe bodily autonomy. Like we'll we'll, we'll get there. Like they they can they can wait a little bit longer. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so so yeah, that was kind of um, scary. But you know, he he comes out of the womb, and uh, uh, I won't go into the graphic nature of all that. It's probably too much for your listeners. But put the video on Patreon <laughs> of the full childbirth. <laughs> <laughs> I will suffice it to say that I no longer care about like blood and gore, like wherever, whenever, like if somebody's like, Hey, this guy's just been speared through the stomach by a giant piece of steel. Uh, Does anybody want to go help him? I'm like, I'm in, this doesn't bother me at all anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, I can even eat like Italian with a red sauce while the stuff's going on. Like that's how completely desensitized I am. No to this phasing. Now. Uh, no. Yeah. No, nothing. So um, <clears throat> when he comes out though, in order to get it out of his lungs, because that can kill him, a nurse stuffs a like, um, I don't know. It's like a, it's like a giant uh, air pump of sorts. It's like a manual air pump down his, down his throat and does it multiple times to get that stuff out of there. So he enters the world and somebody like stuffs something down his throat over and over and over again. It's just (laughs) such a traumatic way to come into the world. And and you could see the trauma because he wouldn't take a bottle for the longest time at first. (laughs) Because he's like, no, no, don't do that to me again. You start with that, and now you have to teach them about consent. <laughs> this is not this is this is a horrifying way to experience the initial year of parenthood. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot. Um, we also uh, had a run-in with. Um, uh, it is not legal in North Carolina to have the green grass that is legal in many other States. Oh, the devil's sticky. Yeah. Yeah. So if they detect it in your system, uh, they uh, won't because they can't legally like send somebody after you and like get a warrant and everything just off of that. Do they like push you out the hospital and then say, good luck. No, they sick CPS on you. That's not fun. Which was entire bullshit. We'll have to do an entirely different episode on how we fought CPS and won. Um, but we had to fight these uh, people because uh, they were just like, yeah, we'll um, we'll take him, right? You, you guys, we're just going to take him and replace him somewhere else. And there was actually a bill in North Carolina that got vetoed by our Democrat governor a couple of years ago, which would have like removed their requirement to try to reunify them with the family. So like you test positive for the green um, or it shows up in your bloodstream, which I think it can be in there for like, I don't um, know, so like 30 days. Yeah. So it shows up in your bloodstream and then they take your kid and you never hear from them again. So that thankfully we avoided that. Um, so yeah, the first year is, is been fun. 
<laughs> but the, the point of all this is having a libertarian nanny as my partner is incredible because of the little ways that she finds to create situations where he gets a say that I never would have thought of. Like it's simple things like, okay, you want, you, he's supposed to be taking a nap. Do you want to, and, and this is harder to do now. It's more of like something we're going to do. Uh, Cause he can't talk yet and not really understand us. Uh, he's, he's currently doing high pitched pterodactyl screeching. Right now, like mm. that is his thing. I will not mimic it for your audience, but that, it is that's very that's very that's very appreciated. <laughs> it's just high pitched pterodactyl screeching like half the day. Um, <clears throat> but and he gets a little bit older, uh, giving him the opportunity to take a nap now or two minutes from now. It's not a ton of consent, but it is a lot more consent than a kid would usually get. Um, another thing is instead of having a crib, we're doing a floor bed. So essentially he's got a mattress. Are you all, are, are, are you doing like the, the co-sleeping thing? Are you all on there or is he like in the same room? No, he's got his own room. Um, so, uh, he didn't want to co-sleep long. Like, uh, I think he, he was in the cradle in our room for like two weeks and then he was like, like, I'm independent. Um, leave me alone, put me in my own thing. So he didn't do that much, but uh, no, a floor bed basically. So there's a mattress about this big uh, on top of the floor and uh, we baby proof the room so that he can't theoretically choke himself, you know, hurt himself, whatever. And instead of putting him in a literal jail, which is what a crib looks like in a literal jail, we just put him in the room, place him on the mattress and it's nap time, but you can choose to take a nap or you can go and, you know, play with one of your toys or you can look in the mirror or you can do whatever. Uh, but really realizing being a libertarian parent is realizing how authoritarian parenting is and how it's amazing that we have any libertarians at all, given how authoritarian parenting just like generally is. I don't know if we're allowed to like say his name anymore. Um, I, I I say this as I forget his name. He was the ball guy who wrote about peaceful parenting. Stefan um, Stefan Molyneux. Yeah, that that <clears throat> guy, Stefan Molyneux. And um, I don't know so why. That, I, I picked up his book, like, you know, before he was, like, socially ostracized. I don't know why I did it. Like, I was, like, in my mid-20s, but I, I read the book. And, like, it, it had – the, the way I took it is it's good for parents, but I recommend people read it. I forget, I forget what it's called. I forgot who he was and I forgot what it was called, but it's a good book. I remember the lessons it, it, it had. We'll take your do, word for it. <laughs> yeah, it. It had more to do with like, you know, how, how do we find ways not to, you know, negate making decisions for other people, but how do we at least give them an opportunity to, to find something that's, that, that's good for both people. And in that case, it was, you know, parents and children, but I use some of that stuff in terms of like how I worked with other people, like people that worked for me, people that worked alongside me, uh, you know, customers when I worked in retail and stuff like that. Like there were a lot of good things because I think the idea of consent, we, we have a, we have an idea of it, but like at the end of the day, all social interactions involve us wanting to get something out of people. It's just a matter of, you know, do they feel respected or do they not feel respected? And are you doing of the best of intention? Well, and that's the thing, the difference between the moral um, consent and the ethical consent. So, like, for me, at least, morality is the line over which if you cross it, I can shoot you. And uh, these are there are certain things under this line, you know, murder, sexual assault, um, assault, uh, theft, things like that. So you cross this line, I can shoot you. Um, but just because somebody didn't assault me doesn't mean that I want to be around that person. Like that's not my only standard for them. So the second standard I think is really helpful is uh, ethical consent. <clears throat> and ethical consent is basically how much consent can we have in this interaction? Like, how do I maximize the amount of consent in this interaction? So like uh, usury, for example, would be a, not a violation of moral consent because you agreed to the loan and you agreed to pay this high interest rate. But from an ethical standpoint, it's really questionable because it's like, 
yeah, but you, you probably knew that that person would be screwed at some point and you're trying to keep them in that contract. Like you're trying to hide things from them. You're trying to conceal how this is going to affect them. Uh, these are things that reduce the ethical consent there. And so I think that, that that's something libertarians miss a lot is uh, we do the, okay, yes, it's really frustrating to try to get society on the level of like moral consent, like kind of have to start there. I, I had, I had a <laughs> professor in college who hated libertarians and he always went with, um, you know, um, Adam Smith and everything. And he's just like, look, he's, he's just written this treatise on people just being horrible to each other. And I'm like, well, there's a reason why he went ahead and published, um, Oh shit! I'm a horrible libertarian. Wealth of Nations. He pub well. He published Wealth of Nations first, but um, Theory of Moral Sentiments ah, okay. came out afterwards. That was the second book, and I was like, "Well, he came out with that because in order to understand the 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 first part, which is you know why we should be free and voluntary in our cooperation with each other, it's you know why do we even want to have this conversation? Why are we even aiming towards this?" And he never wanted to. Um, to talk about that. He always was like, oh, well, you know, it's all just wealth of nations. I'm like, no, there's theory of moral sentiments because he was a Protestant. He was a Protestant Christian. Mm. He's like, you know, this is why I believe we should do it. But here are also the reasons why people who might not have my worldview would want to go for a more peaceful, classical, liberal society. I think that my favorite moral framework that I've ever heard, and I still use it, is actually David Friedman's from... Uh, uh, machinery of freedom. So in machinery of freedom, he basically says human interactions can be categorized into one of three things. Uh, one is uh, um, an interaction where I get something from you or give something to you and don't expect anything in return. So one is interaction where I give something to you, don't expect anything in return. That's love. Another is I give something to you and expect something in return. That's trade. Another is I don't give you shit. My word's not his, um, but I take things from you. That's force. These are the three ways that humans interact with each other. And uh, his goal, and, and I would agree that it's mine, is to move as many human interactions as possible from force to either trade or love. There's there's something about this where it's like this sounds very simple for a lot of people, but when we actually try and apply it to our everyday life, it just gets more and more difficult. And to, to kind of transition into, you know, the, the main topic of today's episode, uh, Dan, for, for people that don't know you, you're, 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 you're probably the most libertarian people I know. I only know that because you've been on more watch lists than I have. But from from your time with Panda Tax Revolution Institute, you seem to have like another arm growing in a different organization all the time. Recently, you went ahead and accepted a new position at Students for Liberty. Congratulations on that. Um, yep. you're, you're a person in the liberty movement who is well accomplished, but you're not just a guy who talks the talk. You've had to walk the walk. This has been not just your entire professional career. This has been your pursuit as an individual. It's almost what drives you as a human being, your purpose on earth. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, you went ahead and posted something online. I I'm not going to go ahead and read it for folks, but it, it came with the premise of you. And I wonder, part of me was thinking, that's why I want to talk about what fatherhood has been like recently. Part of me wonder, wondered as I was reading this, I'm like, is this Dan admitting that he's getting old? Like, is he becoming more nostalgic? Is he really starting to like understand himself as a human being and his own mortality and stuff like that? Well, long story short, it had to do with imposter syndrome. It had to do with why you do the things you do. And you came across it in a way that a lot of people feel, almost everyone feels this. We don't like to admit it. We don't like to admit it to ourselves and we don't like to say it to other people. And it's that, you know, wh why do we do things? Do we do things for others? Do we do things for ourselves? Let let's kind of talk a little bit about that. You didn't need to make it public, but you did. What was the motivation behind that? Did you want to have a conversation? Did you want to just get it out there into the ether just to say, look, like I've got, I've got nothing left. I, I, I'm exposing this and I am, I am moving past it. And th this is, this is just how I feel right now. What, what was the impetus behind that? So the, <clears throat> the post, and I think it's, it's important for context to kind of just 
to say it to, to the listeners is that I've struggled my entire life between wanting to be liked and wanting to create change. To be liked, you have to conform to the status quo, at least for a group of people. To create change, you have to be willing to be disliked, at least by some, in some cases, fiercely. And usually I would end these statuses with like, and here's my answer to this problem. Um, but I just ended it with like, that's it. Like, I don't have an answer for this one. That's, that's, that's all I got. And uh, the impetus for it is basically that I've been on both sides of the equation when it comes to wanting to create a better future. I've been on the side that doesn't care what other people think and just charges ahead and tries to, to create something. And uh, the problem with that side is if you're creating something that is designed to have a better future for humans and not listening to the people who you might want to have a better future for, the odds are that you're going to be a tyrant, essentially. You're going to create something bad. I've also been on the other side of the equation, especially more recently, where, and it might tie to fatherhood, being more cautious and being more careful about, about what I'm doing, but where... I'm seeking so much approval and I want to be liked. I mean, who doesn't, who doesn't want to, you know, have a good circle of friends and spend time with them and, and be appreciated for I, what I you do. I used to say, I don't care if people like me, but here's what I discovered. I would rather have everybody like me because if they do that, they're less likely to cause problems for me. Because when I went at the attitude of just, you know, fuck everybody, I'm just going to do my own thing. I don't care. That's always where I got into the most, precarious situations to put it lightly. And it wasn't that I wanted people to like me, like me. It was more like if I actively make them dislike me, it will make things worse. But then, th then there comes that moment of like, why do we do the things we do? And it, I had to read it a couple of times, man, because it, it forced me to ask a lot of questions that I feel like I answered a few years ago as I was going through some changes. But at the same time, I never really like had that, conversation with myself and it was it, it it was it was something that made me really question like why do i do the things that i do and um it, it's it, it's more important i understand this now because a lot of what i do as a as a as a side hustle coach you know teaching people how to be more out there a lot of what i do and this is an insight into how the coaching goes it's like if you're going to start a high a side hustle that means you're going to have to do self promotion if you do self-promotion, that means you have to actively talk about yourself and value you give. If you're going to do all of that, then you're essentially trying to convince people to trust you to deliver on something. And for a lot of people, that's really difficult. Now, when I get into my podcast clients, I have people who are phenomenally talented people and they have the personality for it and they've got the talent for it, but they are petrified of what if people don't like me or what if I try too hard to be liked? And I don't always have an answer for them. My, my only answer is typically you do it because you have to. And, and why is the ha and why is the have to there? If you're, if you're coming at, if you're coming to me because you want to make more money on something there, you need more money. If you're doing a podcast because you want to do a podcast, it's because you want to put something out for people to enjoy, but, but it all, it all comes down to you. And I think a lot of people, they get confused by that because nobody wants to say, oh, I'm doing this because I want people like me. But somehow we've turned that into a bad thing. I think there is an excess. And I also think there's a degree of you do it because you just have to get by. But it is a difficult thing to ask. It's like, why are you doing this? And when you get to the point where it's like, oh, I'm only doing this because people should hopefully see what I'm doing and want to like me because of it. That, that's, when it that's when it becomes a bit sore because then you really wonder, like, you know, is, is the effort you're putting into what you're doing worth it? And I think especially for if you're trying to do something big, right? So my entire life, I mean, you go to my Facebook, which my parents finally allowed me to have at like 17, I was able to get my own Facebook account. And I think I'm probably the only person ever on Facebook who actually had <laughs> followed the age restrictions on there. <laughs> um, so, uh, my Facebook is slash change the world. Um, you know, my parents never put a glass ceiling above my head 
I'd say, I'd want to do this. They'd say, yeah, awesome. You know, how are you going to pay for it? What are you going to do? How can we help? They never paid for anything, mind you, but (laughs) (laughs) it's how you were going to pay for it. Um, (laughs) Which is also good parenting on some level, I think. But um, they, they always believed in me. And I remember specifically when I went to go drop out of college for just run Panda full-time, my first organization. Um, I had a conversation with my dad and basically his answer was, we support you as long as you are thinking this through. And that's not an answer. Uh, A lot of people might have their parents give them, but uh, it illustrates the level of support and the level of belief that they had in me. And so I've always gone for the biggest thing. And, uh, you know, started with civil liberties and then activist training and then taxes and then um, uh, more activist training. And uh, I think one of the hardest things to come to grips with is uh, if you want to do something big, there's so much you don't know. And uh, that can be told to you and you can get an indicator based on like, what people like, that's kind of a good a corollary that helps you. But the bigger you're trying to make a change, the less you know, and the less, and the more you need to know, because uh, I don't want to just make a change. I want to make a change that's genuinely going to benefit people. That is going to increase human flourishing. That is going to uh, be the adjustment in systems or the adjustment in how we think about the world that leads to the next generation of human beings, including my son, that leads to them having a better start than I did. That leads to them having more opportunities and more of them having more opportunities than my generation did. And, uh, yeah, I could go forward and just be like, screw all you guys. I'm going to go do this thing. And it's simpler that way on some level. It's like, oh, well, I have this idea. I think this idea is going to work. We're going to go implement this idea. But that doesn't mean that that's actually going to be any good. And, and I still don't have the answer to this question of, of, do I want to be liked by the people around me for what I'm bringing forward? Or do I want what I'm bringing forward to actually make a difference? Um, I want both. (laughs) And uh, that is, and I can't throw either out because if I throw out the, I want to make a difference, then I'm just liked by a bunch of people, but forgotten because there's nothing I've actually done that's worthwhile. And if I throw out the other people, then what I'm working on may not actually be all that useful. So it leads to problems with like not taking the right step because you're not sure if that's the right thing to do. And uh, you don't know to the imposter syndrome. You don't know, is this for arrogance or courage? I, I really hated it in like, seven, eight years ago when I was first starting, uh, podcasting because when, when bullies online, and I'll just call them that when bullies online would make fun of me or something, it would start with wannabe podcaster or podcaster. If it was always derogatory, but being a wannabe podcaster, it's like motherfuckers. I had to ask a friend for the money, get the, get get the microphone, please. Um, you know, it, it, it really, it really discounted a lot of the work I did. And I don't feel like I got a lot of credit for the actual on the ground activism I did. Somebody had to go out for Libertarian Party candidates and knock on doors and give out flyers. I was the one driving across, across state lines to go to rallies or go petitions or, or um, you know, forums or whatever meetings uh, to go protest and stuff like that. Like I, I was doing a lot of the work and I was also, I got, I got popular really fast because when I, um, I got a lot of mentorship from Austin Peterson when I was in college, but then I went to freedom works and my mediocre blogs are now being seen by millions of people in a big presidential year. 
that that went to my head quite a bit. But mm. as I began to find other people who were like me, because the one great thing about social media, if it is, if you can't consider, is it allows you to find your groups of people. And it allowed me during a very impressionable time of my life to find other libertarians and to, you know, make friends and to meet horrible people. But finally, I found a group of people where it's like, I can matter and I'm not alone in these thoughts and I can do big things. And often I thought everything I was doing was just to elevate myself so that way I could have more impact wherever I went. I do strongly believe that that is still the case, and I'm proud of the things I did. However, I would be lying if I said that there were not some things that I shouldn't have done or things I didn't feel comfortable with or places where I was a little over my head because I wanted the social validation of being seen. Yep. And there was a there was about two, three-year period where it was around the time my book came out, my first book, Stay Away from Libertarians. Um when that book came out, it the whole the whole reason why I really needed to do it was because it was either go to grad school, it was either get a job as a reporter somewhere because that's what I thought I wanted to do, or it was write a book. It was one of those things. I was not going back to school. I was I could not get a job outside of being like a a very very poorly paid sting reporter. Uh, for local outlets, or it was write a book. So I wrote the book one because I wanted to be an author, but like that book, I, I was twenty. I was self. I, I was twenty. No, I was twenty one. I was twenty one, twenty two. I, I self published it. I put it out there. I put money into promotion. I had a publicist. It did very well. The book did amazingly well. But I got mad because even despite all the successes of being a best selling author and doing really well and getting all this attention. I still wasn't getting the validation I needed from certain people. And that was when it's like, you know, everyone is looking like, oh, you have so much to celebrate. And I'm just like, yeah, but this person isn't congratulating me. Or somebody else did something and this person validated them and what they did. And I just did this by myself and I'm not getting the validation. That was, that was a big wake up call for, moment for me because I realized that I was just trying to follow what I felt was enough to be seen as good. And I was ignoring all the really good work I was doing. And because of that, I was just a very sour and unhappy person to be around. Um, it was, it, it was weird because I had, I had gone and spoken at freedom fest. I had gone and done all this really cool stuff. Like I, I have, I've checked all the libertarian check marks, <laughs> but I wasn't happy. Because at one point, a disconnect came from what am I doing to benefit myself and others? And what was I doing to benefit myself? Because even though I was still doing stuff to help myself and others, helping others was just a nice thing on the side. And it didn't really have to do with what I really need to feel validated, which is, am I doing good? And can somebody tell me I'm doing good? Because I can't believe it for some reason, even if I know I need to hear it. And I think that's, you know, you, you obviously discovered this, not recently. You obviously have known this for a while, but you have this conversation of yourself. I think that's a point of maturity that a lot of people need to reach. Because if people are still asking themselves that question, it's a good question to ask. And it means that it's something you're really considering. I, I just wish more people caught it early, like we did. We're not old and gray yet. But... You know, it's something where it's like, as I look back at the last decade of my life, and I'm pretty sure you see this with all the things you're doing, you're like, I could have saved myself a lot of stress and heartache if I had just had this conversation. I, I think for me, it's actually kind of beautiful because I think it represents wrapping up the worst chapter of my life and finally putting a bow on it, at least so far. Um, the because I had been instilled with so much confidence from my parents going forward. If there was one word that was used to describe me by everyone around me, it was confident. Knew what I was doing, knew where I was going and we were going there. And, uh, in 2017, the tax organization that I was running blew up in spectacular fashion. 
we realized I still have that, the sticker like <laughs> five feet away from me. So something survived. The, the tax revolution sticker. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Crow was cool. You you had good branding. I got to I got to give you that. Hey, um, my branding advisor, uh, Joe, uh, with dark square is awesome. Like absolutely fantastic. We did that well. And, uh, the, the thing that led to some of the downfall, but wasn't a bad thing was we realized that we weren't going to take on the tax code by directly taking on the tax code. It was, it was too big and it was like violating Sun Tzu's laws and the laws of war to go attack an enemy that has the high ground. So we, you know, converted to allowing people to choose where to put their tax dollars essentially. And we had to change the whole organization, the whole branding had to go from TRI to we do better and had to focus on the outcomes and not the inputs. And all these changes had to happen. And we knew there was a risk of losing the donor that one of our biggest donors that we had. And the risk became very real when he's like, love you guys, but I'm out. And so we still went forward. And I think that was the right decision. But then I, I had hired the wrong guy early in the process to run the money. And that was bad because that's what ultimately brought the organization down was um, mismanagement, uh, perhaps worse, but at least mismanagement of the funds of the organization. And uh, it exploded in such spectacular fashion. And, and I'm someone who cares so much about the work that I do that I tend to make friends all the people I work with. So destroying the workplace also destroyed most of my close friendships that I remember I was in the woods in our peninsula of Michigan, where my grandparents live. And I was quantifying what had happened to me over the past uh, few, few months. And I remember like any box that you're like, a man needs to check this in order to be a man. Like he has to have, uh, his freedom and he has to have a good woman by his side and he has to have a, a house uh, over his head and he has to have like food on the table and all of that. Like every single, even like health, like I, I broke a bone for the first time in those Ooh. couple of months. And, <laughs> and uh, breaking a bone as an adult is a whole different thing. Oh yeah. I, I got it uh, caught, got my thumb caught in a wood splitter. <laughs> It was not not a great experience. (laughs) Um, I didn't pass So to add insult to injury, you got a literal injury. To add injury to insult. To add injury to insult. (laughs) (laughs) So about as low as you could possibly get at that point. Friends, uh, I had a family sort of. um, But like at that point, I felt like a complete and utter failure. And uh, it really affected my confidence going forward. I remember effectively resigning from doing We Do Better because I would come up with these plans, but then I wouldn't think I could actually do them. And so I wouldn't do them. And uh, that period last has lasted for like, what? We're in 2022. That was 2017, 2018. So for almost five years. And uh, I think that the post on Facebook that I made represents a wrapping up of this period of my life because it, it represents me going, no, maybe I didn't know what I needed to know over the past 10 years in order to make the change I wanted to make. And I started every, every iteration, every new arm that you talk about is me going and learning from the previous organization going, the approach that we were taking will not work. We need to use a different one. Panda to SI was, hey, the approach we're taking passing laws to say the government can't detain you without a charge of trial. Great, won't actually stop them from doing that. SI, we're gonna help all these activist organizations. Great, Um, taxes, we're gonna go right at the heart of the beast, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I can be okay with the fact that, yeah, maybe I didn't make the impact I wanted to make with those organizations. But uh, I learned from that and I was working with the best that I had. And 
I said, I don't really have an answer. I'm not sure if this is a good answer to the ultimate um, thing that I pose, but it is kind of the, after I saw the other people say, Hey, this is something I deal with too. And felt a little bit, (laughs) a little bit better. I think where I've ended up at is I have the confidence to say, I am doing my best to do what I believe is right. However, I'm also willing to hear from people who disagree, to hear from people who it might affect and understand what they're saying and adjust and change what I'm doing based on that. I I think to give yourself a little bit of credit, though, I think you're looking at it the wrong way. It's not necessarily do you have an answer to this big question it's it's a motion. It's not a thing. It, it's a it's a process. And and going through the comments uh, from that alone, and and you know just me asking this question myself, it's like it's not a question. It's not a matter of if this will happen to somebody. It's a matter of when it will happen. And, and I think for listeners, they can apply it to relationships. They can apply it to the workplace. They they can apply it to a lot of things. Why, why does Jimmy's mom care so much about bringing snacks to the soccer game all the time? Why, why, why is that happening? Why is somebody, why is somebody so obsessed with their, like, you know, um, you know, working professionals, soccer team or something like that? Why, why do we seek validation? Why do we seek the things we do? And it's, it's not an, if it's a win and the win only comes when you identify that you have been on that path and it's identifying it and then choosing to get off. And I think that marks a point of maturity that comes in a different phase in their lives. Because I think it's, I was having this conversation with a past guest. It was like, when did I feel like I was an adult? Like, when did I feel, I was talking to a family member about this last week. It's like, when did you actually start feeling like you were an adult? And I think the first, I think it comes in a couple of different phases. The first one is when you realize that by law, you will no longer, by law and by age, you will no longer have the protections or benefits you had as a child. That, that goes when you leave the house, when you graduate from high school. The second one is like, you know, when, when, when do you start to see your parents as human beings? Because that was a big moment for me. It was like, you know, my parents are not these super people. They're people with flaws. They're people with hopes, dreams, fears, aspirations, things that make them sad. They're just like me. And they're trying to figure it out. When you start to see your parents as human beings, I think that's a huge point. That's when you can say, damn, like you are, you were in adult mode. But then you get to the point of, you know, a, a emotional and behavioral maturity when you begin to forgive yourself for things that have taken up your time. Because I think for a lot of people, you know, the pursuit of the pursuit of man is to achieve wealth and money to do that, to, to achieve status. But then we all hit a certain point where it's just like we're trying to get our own time back. And that's why I do everything with this show. That's why I scrapped the old show. And now it's it's this. It's, you know, we're in a situation where our own time is being taken from us, whether it's because of what, what we're allowing to happen or things that are taken outside of our control. How do we get that back? Because we have to stop going for the things that society has told us are the big milestones. And we have to start looking at our life and seeing when we die, will we die all right? I'm not saying happy. I'm not saying die happy. But what I'm saying was when you look back and you say, you know what? It was a it was a life well lived. And I think this is one of those points because I didn't feel like this until a couple of years ago. I've talked about it enough. When I was working at Parlor, dude, I was talking to celebrities, bikini models, politicians. I was on top of the world. And within a few months, I am in the middle of fucking nowhere America, trying to hide from people, avoiding social media, trying to rebuild my life. And it's a difficult fucking thing. But it wasn't until I slowly built back. It was like, you know what? I didn't need the validation. It wasn't those moments of when people saw me as being useful. It was when I felt I was doing the most good. Then it's only been like a couple of years. No, no, it hasn't. It has been a year of my life where I have actually felt like I am doing things for myself with also the reason of benefiting others and not just the, this idea of what bringing and putting value into the world is. And it's a difficult thing. It really is. And uh, the instinct I think for a lot of people at this point 
is I've seen it happen with a lot of activists, with a lot of people who, who get excited and interested in improving people's lives and see politics as the way to do it. I've seen the moment happen where they're just like, I'm going to homestead instead. I'm, I'm going to go, uh, you know, build a farm. I'm going to, and there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but I think the harder thing in that moment is to go, all right, I'm not doing this for validation. I'm not doing this for what other people think about me. Is there still a way that I can use my skills and my uh, experience to help other people? Where Where is the place where I am kind of uniquely best uh, suited to do that after I've gotten to the point where all I want to do is homestead? <laughs> because that's that to me... That to me is what separates the people who then go on to change the world from the people who don't. I don't necessarily mean any shade against the people who don't, but when it's easy, when you believe, when you're like, all these people are you know, surrounding you and cheering you on and saying, let's go, let's go, let's go. It's easy to go out and be like, Yes, let's change things. Let's go do the hard stuff. Let's go, you know, make things happen. But when you don't get to rely on those people and when you look at yourself in a way and you're like, I don't, I don't know if I've been all that effective up until this point. And when you have responsibilities, it's that point at which you can choose to either just be out there for yourself, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. And in a capitalist society, you can do lots of that and still help other people in a way. Or can you be patient with yourself in figuring out the way that you can help people, even without the adulation and the praise? I think that's really hard. and I think you probably could get adulation and praise out of it at some point, but uh, it, it becomes the nice thing. And it, it isn't the thing. Right. It isn't. I mean, I know, I know one of the reasons we're so good on Facebook, which now all of my Gen Zer like direct reports now all called boomer book, just like, <laughs> that's not fair. <laughs> you know, if they're the ones who are going to kill it, then let it be done. <laughs> Right, but like I, remember, I got really excited when I spiced up my LinkedIn a few months ago. <laughs> where where did that come from, by the way? Like, was it just during COVID people were like, "I'm bored, I'm going to get on LinkedIn," and all was, of a sudden, it, well, I mean, people started celebrating new jobs like they were getting drafted. It's like you know, after much time and deliberation and prayer and support from my family, I have accepted this new position at Bain Capital as a junior financier. And it's just like, who gives a shit? No, I mean, it, it became it, it became another form of like professional LARPing. It's like no one actually is as happy as they are in their LinkedIn photos. It's all Kabuki theater. It's all it is. But somehow it became more popular and it's just, you know, it's where, it's where the cool kids went. It's, it's true, but I think I used to live, I know I used to live for that. And I know the addiction that's there. Like I used to live for getting a thousand likes on a post and a hundred likes on a post and, you know, a bunch of comments. And I used to live for that. Uh, every day you'd wake up and you'd be like, all right, I'm going to put this new post out and you get all this adulation and appreciation. And uh, eventually that becomes hollow. And uh, again, well, you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. There is a value to knowing and getting feedback and hearing from other people. It is a, a crutch that is not, it's fake, I guess, is what it comes down to, right? The number of likes and hearts you get on your post on social media doesn't take any steps toward making people's lives better, including your own. It it wasn't until about, 
so I've been doing on the run for 200 plus episodes now. It wasn't until I really refocused the show on personal development and then really advocating for myself as a consultant, as a coach for how people could, you know, develop those things. It wasn't until I heard people say I could pay my bills. Now I could take my family out on vacation. Now I don't have to worry about whether or not I'm going to overdraft. I can afford to say to my boss, fuck you. I'm going to go do something else. It wasn't until a relationship, a relationship had been built because I was more focused on the long-term development instead of the quick hits that I actually felt like I was finally doing something because I can straight up tell people I got probably close to half a million downloads or more of the Remster Republic that later became the Remster Martinez experience. I can't say that it impacted anything. I got smaller. I got more focused. Yeah. I, I got taken off the, the podcast list at libertarianpodcast.com, but damn, I have actually helped people. And if I yep. can help a dozen people within this year achieve a level of comfort and peace of mind that they never had prior, that has done more than anything else I ever did. And that was that moment where it's like, you know, they didn't need to say thank you. But when it did, it was just a nice moment of, you know what? It wasn't necessary because I knew, but now I can lay it. I can lay at night, not having to wonder because we all wonder it's part of being human. So Dan, th this has been, um, this has been a wonderful conversation. You you've really been able to show people that when you refocus on that commitment to the why for your motivation, what, what drives your motivation, you can go through these things and you don't have to question if it will happen, if you will wonder, if you will struggle with that. It's a matter of when. The difference between the people that understand it, though, and the people that don't are those that look at it and say, you know what? The road has been traveled. It has been rough, but it is closing now and I am at peace because now I'm on to something else that I know is right and true. Um, Congratulations on being a dad for over seven months now. Your son will not be as neurotic as scarred over time. I hear infants forget about things like that. And uh, your, your new job at Students for Liberty uh, seems to be awesome. Wish you nothing but congratulations there. People want to go ahead and follow all your projects, everything you're doing for the cause of liberty and building a better tomorrow. How could they do so? Uh, so, uh, for students for Liberty, go to studentsforliberty.org, um, for the Institute for community solutions, just Google it because the web URL is so long. You don't want to type that in. Uh, so thank you so much Remso for having me on. Um, sometimes it's just great to hang out on a podcast with a friend and that's what I felt like this was. So. As always, man, always a pleasure. Always great to have you on. Folks, if you enjoy conversations like this, if you got something out of it, hopefully you want to go ahead and give a little bit of value back. Please, it costs you nothing, but means everything to me. A five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to the show across Al Gore's amazing internet helps us spread the good news that things can't get better for you in your lifetime. Achieve that dangerous freedom. As always, I'm Rems W. Martinez. Be safe, be good, good night. For those of you listeners who know my background a bit, you might remember the stories of my first few jobs after college. From being a mall cop to selling makeup door to door, I realized that I had skills that were being underutilized and that these minimum wage jobs couldn't support me or last forever. I spent years going through YouTube, reading books, listening to podcasts, and taking enough online courses to reinvent myself as a professional copywriter and digital marketer. Years later, thanks to my side hustles and drive, I've worked with national news outlets, multi-million dollar tech startups, nonprofits, and celebrities to build their brands and drive sales. None of this could have happened if I didn't develop in-demand skills. I had to do this alone, but you don't have to. You have Hustlers University 2.0. Hustlers University 2.0 is a community where you can learn real skills to earn money online today, starting with side hustles you can use to elevate your game. I'm not just an advocate for Hustlers University, I'm also a student. Every professor is verified to be making 10K to 500K monthly in their selected field. 
You get full resources, lesson plans, and an active community of thousands of other Hustlers University students working on skills such as stock analysis, cryptocurrencies, e-commerce, copywriting, which was my favorite course, one I actually went ahead and took last month. And as a copywriter of seven years, I even took a ton out of that, including some of the resources I was able to take over to my day job. You also learn freelancing, financial planning, affiliate marketing, business management, and so much more. If you're tired of depending on a boss who hates you to deliver your paycheck or have learned since the lockdowns that controlling the source of your income is vital to your individual freedom, sign up for Hustlers University 2.0 today using the link in the show notes. I'll see you there.